I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Why should you have to sort of compromise or make yourself small all the time for half of your life when you're at work. You should be comfortable. You should feel like it's designed for you. It's really important. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to architect Chandra Robinson. Chandra was interested in design growing up, but took a detour to study geology and physics. After spending several years as a sea kayaking guide, she made the decision to go back to school to become an architect. A graduate of Boston Architectural Center, she's now a principal at Portland, Oregon-based Lever Architecture, where she focuses on the intersection of community engagement and design projects, while challenging conventional methods of fabrication by using local and commonplace materials in exciting and unexpected ways. Also, since 2019, she's been a Portland Design Commissioner, is an advocate for quality design and committed to celebrating Portland's history and being part of its future. She's currently part of a team reimagining affordable housing in a community theater in Portland's Black community and has led the design of some fascinating and meaningful built projects, which you're about to hear all about. Here's Chandra. My name is Chandra Robinson. I live and work here in Portland, Oregon, and I'm an architect, and I'm really focused on community engagement and projects that serve the communities that they're in, because I feel like it's a really important way to sort of give back and to make places better and to bring people together, and it's what I can do through architecture. I love that so much. I want to hear all about that, but I also want to hear all about you, Chandra. To use an architecture metaphor, I like to start with the foundation. Can you take us back to your childhood and tell me all about your youth, your family dynamic, growing up in Portland, and what kinds of things captured your imagination? Sure. So, yeah, I did grow up here in Portland, and I grew up on the east side. Once I graduated from high school, my mom actually moved to North Portland in the St. John's area and has been there ever since. And so I sort of have an experience of Portland sort of in many different parts of town. So growing up on the east side, the light rail wasn't in for a long time. And it was really if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to take the bus. And so I remember my brother and sister and I, you know, taking the bus for literally two hours to get downtown to sort of do fun stuff. And the fun stuff that there was to do downtown Portland then was was go to Powell's, go to a coffee shop, like patisserie. And for a long time, honestly, the city was really similar. And those were 
were still the only things that I knew to do downtown. Since then, it's grown a lot. But as a kid, I remembered it as a place where like, that's where all the fun stuff happens. That's where you want to be. You don't want to be out here uh, in the suburbs where you live. And so we, we were always kind of on the move looking for something fun to do. So I grew up with a brother and sister. I'm the middle child. And my mom, we sort of lived in a few different places out in the east side of Portland before moving to North Portland. I have a lot of great memories of it. We lived in uh, a couple of different of affordable housing developments. So I think that's partly why I'm interested in doing affordable housing now is just to kind of be part of the design process and really make sure that people uh, end up with something that's great for them and their community. Honestly, as a kid, like I always wanted to be an architect since I was little, but I don't remember why, because I didn't actually know any architects. My mom didn't know any architects, but I always wanted to be an architect. That's interesting to me. Did you know of architects? Like, was it pointed out to you that those were the ones who built the buildings? Or No, I didn't know any. I didn't know like famous architects or anything. I just knew that I thought it would be cool to design buildings of any kind, really. And and I think as a child, I first sort of was thinking about like houses, because that's the thing you know so well is where you live and your space for your family. So since you know it intimately, it's I think it's where a lot of kids uh, start is thinking about how to design a a place to live. So I always wanted to, but I didn't have examples of what other women or people of color there were in architecture, really anyone. I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to be a ballerina. Those are the only two career paths that that (laughs) I remember being interested in when I was a kid. And I think ballerina is pretty common, but maybe architecture, not so much. I'll make my assumptions about you after I get to know you better, but I'm already starting to think that you look at the world in a way that deconstructs it and wants to make it better. My mom was basically a social worker. She had a lot of different positions where she would get people into job trainings and things like that. But, you know, my mom's from Mexico. And so I'm half Mexican and half black. And so because my mom was such a good person and all of her work and her career was about helping other people, those are my values too. You know, I want to help people. But I didn't want to do it as a social worker. I remember my mom getting a lot of calls throughout the day from people, you know, asking for different kinds of help, not through a program, but because they had heard that this woman, Maria Solano, she spoke Spanish, she's Mexican, and she could help you. So that was kind of her name was passed around, I think, through communities. And a lot of people would just call her and say, I need help with this thing. You know, can you help me? And she would find someone to help them. And oh, so it's just really she's wonderful. Really, <laughs> she is. She's a great lady. So I, I feel very much like I, I try and help people now, you know, in all the ways that I can, but, you know, doing it through architecture is really important to be able to use the skills that I've learned to sort of do that similar work. Well, I totally agree. And not only is it cool to build buildings, it's that was a correct assumption by you as a child. Um, (laughs) It's also really important that that kind of mindset is informing our built environment, I think. So we will we will get into that. But um, it sounds like you had a really great mom. And being the middle child, did that yield any sort of angst or invisibility or growing pains in your teenage years? Or how were you expressing your creativity and curiosity then? 
You know, as a family, we did a lot of stuff. My my dad actually is an artist. He's a painter. And so my brother and sister and I all have good hand drawing skills, good color coordination skills, good composition skills, I think, sort of naturally. So as kids, yes, we did a lot of art projects. You know, I think a lot of my inspiration comes from nature and the outdoors because we also, we camped a lot. And I think a lot of kids in Oregon, that's just something you always did, right? So we drove around. We would, you know, drive all the way down to San Francisco and camp the whole way there and back. That's what we would do for our summer vacations. And so I feel like the places that I'm most inspired are not necessarily architectural spaces. They're usually outdoor spaces. Folks have asked me before sort of what is an early architectural memory that that you think actually had an impact on you. And, you know, I didn't know architects, but my grandparents lived in Mount Angel, which is just south of Portland. And in Mount Angel is the Mount Angel Abbey, which is a monastery. That's where the Alvar Alto Library is, right? So it's the only project by Alto here in Oregon. And so it's a beautiful library, but as a kid, I actually would go up to the monastery all the time and we would swim. They had a building that was just a natatorium and it's gone now. It's been demolished and there's a lot, a lot of new buildings out there now. But in the summers, we would stay with my grandparents in Mount Angel and then we would go and we'd pick strawberries in the morning because my grandparents wanted us to make sure that we sort of knew what kind of work they had always done that got them where they were, you know. We'd pick berries with my grandpa, you know, until maybe one o'clock in the afternoon or something. We'd eat lunch out there and then he'd bring us back home and we'd head up to the Abbey and go swim for the rest of the afternoon. It was really, really fun. And I remember being in that space and remember how beautiful it was. It was sort of like, it was sort of like a church, even though it was just a swimming pool building. It was masonry and had these really beautiful tall windows. And, and I remember that space very much and thinking, oh, this is a cool building. That's really like the one memory as a kid that I kind of hold on to. And I can imagine like, oh, well, maybe my being an architect did come from sort of having these experiences in these spaces. And I just don't remember the exact day when I put two and two together, like, oh, yeah, buildings. Yeah, that is why I want to do that, because these buildings are cool. Well, how did you find the path to studying architecture then? Like, what route did you take? So I wanted to be an architect. And when I went to college, I thought that's what I was going to do. But I audited a class because I, I went to the UW and you had to have a portfolio and apply to the school, right? So before I applied to the school, I sat in on some classes to kind of see, you know, oh, what what is the program like that I'm going to be applying to? And I don't know what classes I sat in on, but I somehow got a sense of like, oh, everyone here is working on like, a mall or something. They're working on something that I have no interest in. And I kind of got the idea that like, oh, as an architect, you don't actually get to do what you want to do. It's just something that you've been paid to do. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like what I want to do anymore. So I didn't apply to the architecture school. And instead, I started studying geology. And I studied physics as well, just because the I know the prerequisites were all the same. You had to take all the same classes. And physics is so interesting that I wanted to keep studying it. But I never imagined that I would go into it because it's the kind of field where I don't feel like you can make a contribution unless you're like the top 1% of minds, you know, who are actually contributing something in, in the sciences. And so I studied that. And, and honestly, I, 
I studied geology because I really liked being in the outdoors and I had started doing some sea kayak guiding. So I was taking people out on trips, on multi-day trips, sea kayaking like in the San Juan Islands. And people always had a lot of questions about like, how this come to be and somehow geology was was a cool way for me to sort of understand and then also be able to sort of share all of that with people that I was working with in the outdoors. It was a great life. I enjoyed it a lot. But over time, after having done that for many years and also working as a outdoor ed program director um, and so working with kids, I, I don't know if you've they do this in a lot of places, but in, in Oregon, in the sixth grade, kids go to outdoor school. And when I was a kid, it was for a week. You go to outdoor school and it's basically like science camp. I did not have this as a child, so I'm no. fascinated. No, tell me all about it. <laughs> oh my God, it's the most fun you've ever you've ever had. And there's camps everywhere, right? So they have um, sort of different topography and different natural features. But the one that I went to when I was in sixth grade is Camp Adams. And it had, you know, there was a river and fields and forests. And so you would take water samples in the river. You would dig trenches in the soil and look at the different layers of the soil and identify them. And, you know, you do all this kind of stuff. And then you would also like, oh, well, now it's time for recreation. So you get to do archery or you get to like make a necklace made of a wood cookie or some, you know, do like wood burning kind of things. So a lot of really cool stuff. And I thought it was the most fun thing I'd ever done in my whole life. And then so when I was in high school, I went back as like, I still wanted to be part of it. So I would, you know, stay with the sixth graders in their cabin and kind of take them to each of their classes. And that's what eventually led me into working in the outdoors and then being a program director for an outdoor school up in the San Juan Islands. And so those things were all connected for me, the outdoor ed and the, and the sea kayaking stuff. And before we get to architecture, I can see how you got to sea kayaking and outdoor ed, but can you tell me what you took from it? What real lessons or experiences are still impacting you today from that time in your life? I mean, it's very much about like giving someone an experience that 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 really sticks in your memory. I mean, things that I think about in in sort of sea kayaking or just all of those moments of like sitting on the water and not going anywhere or hearing, you know, water drip off your paddle as you're going forward, but sort of having a space where you're just, it's just you and you're by yourself, even if there's a whole group of people around you, but those experiences are yours. And I think I always bring those into spaces as well. Like I'm sitting in my office right now and, you know, it's an open office, like like most people have now, where you're just sort of sitting next to one another. People don't have private offices, right? So it can be loud. And there's a few places in the building that I can go to. And it's, you know, it's not like sitting in a kayak by yourself, but it's like standing at the top of a stairwell where you have a view that looks out to the city in the distance. And it's just like a quiet place and no one else is in that space. And sort of imagining what are the reasons why we want to be in these buildings, right? Like this isn't my home, so I don't have this view all the time. And so I really appreciate the special things about this building and how I get to use it when I'm here. So I think those are some of the things is just imagining like how special some very small thing can be and how you can create nice moments in buildings that where people can just be whoever they are and really enjoy the space. I just had a really nice feeling being at the top of the stairwell, looking out over the city with you. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It's a great spot. 
I, I can appreciate that. Um, and it sounds like the spots that you appreciate in nature, you somehow found a way to kind of translate that poetry into the built landscape as well. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think so, too, because um, I think we have enough scientific evidence now to prove the point that like gray structures that don't appeal to human senses actually are damaging to humanity. (laughs) Yeah, right. They break your spirit down a little bit, right? Yeah, they, they do and demoralize you. Yeah. So how did you go from sea kayaking and outdoor ed to architecture? I had been doing sea kayaking for a long time and I actually gone on a trip with Outward Bound because I my dream at the time was winters in Mexico and summers in Alaska, you know, just like being on the water most of the days of the year. And I'd gone on a training trip and I, I think I hadn't been with a really big group in a while, but just this big group of people all putting their stuff together on the beach, like just sleeping bags rolling around and just stuff everywhere and the chaos of like starting a trip. And I thought to myself, this is the time, right? Because I was 30 when I decided to go back to architecture school. But I I thought like, this is the time where you have to make this decision. Are you going to do this? Because it's going to be too late to go back to school. You're not going to want to do it. So it's you either go back to school and study architecture or you dive deep again into the sort of outdoor guiding world. And I had been thinking about architecture the whole time, thinking like, oh, I still am interested. I still want to do it. After that trip, I decided, okay, well, let's see where we can go to school without reworking your entire life, you know, like see what programs are out there. And so I decided to take a job on the East Coast, sea kayak guiding. And I did it intentionally because I was like, okay, well, when the season's over, I'm going to go down to Boston and I'm going to check out a bunch of schools, right? And so I did. I checked out a bunch of schools and I kind of looked around and I found a school that was like, okay, well, this is based on an apprenticeship model. So you're supposed to work in architecture kind of the whole time you're in school. And I was like, well, that sounds like what I want to be doing, right? I'm 30. I don't want to start over and just be in school with a lot of folks who are way younger than me. I want something that feels a little more comfortable. And so, you know, after that season of guiding was over, I just moved to Boston and started school and found an apartment. And so I just decided to do it. You know, I went to the East Coast on purpose and I just decided now is the time. I'm not going to do that like garage sale on the beach again with like (laughs) a million kayakers. I've done that too many times. And now I'll just go back to enjoying kayaking and I'm going to take another path. And so really, that's how I decided. You sound adventurous. I do like adventure. I do. (laughs) I I like the way you operate. Um, I also think it's really, really astute at 30 to know yourself well enough to know that an apprentice program was going to be way better than like getting into the hypothetical shopping mall building of a different program. Yeah, yeah. And I was really excited about that, though. I was excited about studio culture and being really creative. But I also wanted to, you know, at 30, I also wanted to say like, okay, is this really for me? Because I looked into it before and I thought maybe it wasn't. So now it's going to be important for me to actually see what what working in an office is like. What do people really do 
outside of the studio, the sort of idealized and theoretical while you're in school? You know, what do people really do? So apparently that worked out for you because here you are. (laughs) Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) I thought it was awesome. (laughs) Talk to me about like what your early experiences were that really clicked for you that and also when you started to feel your creative agency kick in in terms of like really thinking you could have an impact on the built world. The first jobs that I had were very much like everyone's, their production. But my first job was at a firm that was four people. I was one of the four people, right? Oh. So it was two people who were in school, you know, my, my friend and I going to the same school, and then a principal, and then another sort of senior architect. And so I think starting off at a firm like that, where there was only four people meant that we could do everything, we got the opportunity to do everything, because there wasn't anyone else who was going to do it. So it was a lot of production, but there was also design and there was kind of everything that you do and this whole process. And it was even, we stayed up all night before deadlines and worked through the night to get a set out. And it was just the four of us. And so I think I just learned so much in that first job that right away I was really excited about it because I think folks who maybe start their first position in a bigger firm very quickly get put on the same kind of work over and over again, or have the same task on different projects over and over again, uh, because that's really easy to do. But in a small firm, you do so many things that you actually are able to find what you like doing and what you don't like doing much quicker, I think. And so I think from even my first position, I was really excited to be in the office every day. Like I would walk to the office across the bridge. It was in Fort Point Channel. And I was just so excited every day going there. I had so much energy for it. And it was really fun. I mean, it was it's a really hard program because you're working, but then you're also in studio and taking classes the whole time also. And so you really have really long days where you've already stayed up all night working on something for studio and then you're still coming into work the next day and working through. And that program actually, I think, has like a 95% attrition rate. There's just very few people who will put up with that amount of work Um, because there are plenty of programs, right, where you don't have to work. You're just in studio. That's what you're focusing on. Um, But I really liked doing both. It was good for me at the age that I was coming into grad school and I could still make money and pay for school because I was working when I wasn't just going to school. So I think that was also a really big draw. And it sounds to me like, I mean, the energy that you you brought to it because it was exciting to you, it sounds to me like having that macro overview of the architectural process and not getting stuck into a repetitive task was really important to also, I always tell my students, it's so important not only to know what you're good at, but to know what you're not good at or what you don't like, because you need to have all of that information in order to design the career that works for you. Yeah. And to collaborate with the people that are going to play to their strengths which might be your weaknesses, which is ideal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's so important. And I I think change is good. I think it's exciting and fun. And so, you know, after that first position that I had in architecture, you know, Boston's a, a big town and they actually had an architecture temp agency. So I decided that, you know, okay, well, I know the kind of work that we do here. 
you know, we've done some higher ed work, we've done some master planning for the New England Aquarium, like a lot of really diverse kind of projects that I thought were great. But I also wanted to understand what it was like to work in a bigger firm or firm that did much different kinds of work. And so I then worked at three other firms while I was in Boston, just to kind of see what they were like. I and I just did it because I wanted the change and I wanted the experience and I wanted to know, you know, well, what am I looking for in a position? What do I what kind of office culture uh, works for me? And so, you know, working at some other firms was really great because the office culture was very different, especially with, you know, from four people to like 120 people at, at another firm that I worked at. Um, things were really different, but I could understand sort of how people really fit into the culture of the office and kind of made a place for themselves. And so I think that really helped me because I was then going into my career, you know, that was my first few jobs in the first few years of architecture school. I was really going into it knowing what I did and didn't like, just like you said, like, what are the things that are going to work for me? And I decided four people is too small. People have big personalities and working with the same three people every single day. It's like, that's too hard. Architecture could be stressful. And it's I think that's hard on a really small teams. And then, you know, 120 people was too big. I was like, I don't even recognize half the faces. I only recognize the people who are on my floor. And I was like, so that's too big. You know, what's the right number? What what do I feel good at? And I feel good in sort of the mid-size now. There's enough people so that there's a lot of variety, right? You get to work with lots of different kinds of people on different projects. And to me, that's really important because I, I do really like change. And I like having an experience in lots of different things. Well, and multiple perspectives also just is so enriching. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you learn so much from everyone that you work with, right? Yes, yes. Even now, it's like we reach out all the time and ask each other, like, have you done this kind of detail before? Or have you used this product before? And we all sort of share knowledge. And that's how it goes. That's why I started a podcast where I get to talk to people like you and ask all the questions I want to ask. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive 
They've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, even his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. That was a really important step for you to kind of understand what culture and what work environment was going to suit you. Mm-hmm. But are you also at this point in your career deciding like what your values and goals are in terms of what you'll do with your career? 
I definitely looked at what were the types of projects other firms were doing, right? And the ones that I worked for in Boston were doing a lot of higher education, so a lot of university work, and then some cultural institutions, which I, I thought those were really exciting because what I was starting to find was that as excited I as I was about designing a house, like a really beautiful house, you know, as I imagined when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, but who gets to see that house? It's like just these family members, you know, maybe it's 10 people who are regularly in that space. I really want to design spaces where there's going to be a lot of people in there. And so they really work for a lot of different kinds of people. So I really started thinking about that was what, what are the projects that get the most people in the door? And those are libraries and museums and schools and all kinds of cultural institutions. And so I always was kind of thinking about that as what I wanted to do. You know, when I came to Portland, I I started doing some sort of like commercial stuff that was developer driven. And again, that's because it was new to me. I hadn't done that when I was in Boston. And it, and it was really interesting. Think projects would go really fast, and you can make so much more modern things than you were allowed to make at some of the universities, right? Especially on the East Coast, because they're very old, and everything is supposed to kind of meld with the historic uh, buildings all around it. And so sometimes you can you couldn't break out too far, right? But with commercial developer driven projects, then then you could. And so I thought that was really exciting. And I think I did that for a while as I came back into Portland and eventually, you know, ended up at all of the firms I was here, you know, Henna Barrietti and Hacker and Works Partnership and started to be able to work a little bit more on those spaces again that lots of people get to be in. And I think that's the most exciting, you know, something where I can take my mom and my family on a tour of and say, look, this is my new project that just finished. And it's not someone's private house that I have to arrange a tour of, but it's a space that, you know, we can all go and enjoy. Those are the things I really, that I really like still. And I, I developed that. I, I figured that out for myself pretty early on that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, it sounds like that's also kind of connected to your kayaking experience in that you wanted all of your guests to have a memorable experience. Yes. And same thing with these buildings. And you can design a home where the family will have a very memorable life there, which is yeah. great, not in any way denigrating that. But these public buildings or these cultural institutions for sure have the ability to sort of impact the the nature of the city, the personality of the city, and all of the inhabitants of the city in a much broader way. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like that was your jam. <laughs> yeah, that's what's really exciting is because, you know, as a kid, I take the bus downtown and I was doing all the free stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't paying to go in anywhere. You know, when my mom would bring us down, we would go to the museum, right? The Portland Art Museum. But for the most part, we would come down and we'd just be at Keller Fountain and at Powell's and at a, you know, a place where we could buy a drink and sit there for a while. And so I think that I always really like spaces that anyone can go into that are, that are really open because that's what I did as a kid. And that's how I learned a lot. And that's, that was really exciting to me, you know, to have a city life where as a young person, you know, you could feel safe and have lots of places to go. And it wasn't just that you had to pay to go into anything. So it, and it was different back then, right? It was the 80s when it was fine for kids to be downtown and hang out by themselves. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, 
Either we didn't get kidnapped or people didn't worry that we were going to get kidnapped as much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I don't know which one it was, but yeah, yeah we're all still here. Like <laughs> we all survived it. But um, I do think it's, it's an important like baseline value to have a city that everyone can participate in, that everyone yeah. can have access to, including children of all ages. It should feel like theirs. Yeah, absolutely. And it does because I spent all that time as a kid. I, Portland definitely still feels like my hometown, even though it's grown a lot. It still is very comfortable and I love it. And I compare all other places to it. You know, when I was in Boston, I was like, I mean, this city is awesome. There's so much to do. There's so many cultural institutions, so many museums. I've seen so much art and heard so many great lectures here but you know the weather is terrible and the people are not nice and it's really dirty it's so dirty you know <laughs> so it's always like do people not know that there are places where it doesn't get to zero degrees and 100 degrees all the time but you know things are changing everywhere but I don't know I always thought how strange it was that we, people would live in such extreme places when there's a perfectly nice very temperate place like Portland <laughs> So I knew I wanted to come back at some point. That's also why I went to school on the East Coast, because I was like, well, I'm eventually just going to move back to Portland and stay because that's where my family is. And because it's a great city. I read it some, somewhere in your career, maybe in the early part of your career, you led the construction of the largest mass timber building in the U.S., yeah, so that I, that was a really great project. Just before coming to Lever, I was at Hacker Architects and I came in and worked on a new office building for Credit Union, First Tech Credit Union out in Hillsborough. And it's 156,000 square feet and it's Glulam and CLT. And it's not the tallest, but it's the largest building by area in the country that's, you know, this mass timber product. So Glulam and CLT, LT is very exciting, I feel like, in the world of building without um, steel and concrete. Can you just tell our listeners, like, super basic what glue lamb and CLT is? Yeah, it's what we call mass timber. So it means that it's wood, but it's not just like a two by four, right? That's that's small, it's narrow, it's flat. Mass timber has some depth to it, right? So when we're talking about glue lambs, we're talking about glue laminated beams and columns. So individual pieces of uh, wood are laminated together and create a structural member that's really strong, right? And glue lamps have been used for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And and what you'll see in historic buildings is, you know, a beam or a column, it's actually just made from a tree. But we're not doing that anymore, right? We're not cutting down an old growth tree to get one giant timber out of it. Instead, we're using smaller diameter wood to make these using technology, right? Because you're laminating them. Then CLT, that's cross laminated timber. So that's a flat panel that again is made from smaller pieces that are laminated together in different directions. And that you can use as floors and walls. And so what that gives you also, I know a little bit about it, is dimensional stability as well. Because when you cross laminate the grain, you don't get expansion and contraction. Yeah, exactly. The dimensions are more stable and stiffer because the CLT is like, you know, there's one layer going one direction, the next layer changes, right? And it goes back and forth. Historically, you could only build of a certain size with solid wood timber framing. But with That's this right. CLT and mass timber, you can apply it to really large skyscraper like buildings. 
Yes, exactly. There was in the Oregon Code before, there was a heavy timber category where, you know, there were certain fire ratings that were assigned to it and certain things you could do to it, um, do with it as in terms of number of stories and height of building, et cetera, because the size of the timber, if you imagine a fire, it sort of burns the outer layer, but mm-hmm. it gets stable at some point, right? And everything that's left in there is still supporting the structure. So it's allowed to have a layer of char on it. Well, it's the same thing with this new mass timber that's, you know, that's laminated instead is there's a certain amount of char that's allowed on those. And so people have been working very hard to sort of get all of the testing done so that there are new rules in place that allow you to build much taller. But if you aren't doing the tallest, tallest, you can sort of expose a little bit more of the wood, which is always what we want to do, right? If we're using this wood, that's really beautiful. We want to see it. And so like here in our office, actually, this building, Albina Yard, is the first building in the country that was um, made with domestically produced CLT. So that means that it was made here in the country. And in fact, it was made here in Oregon. Lever is all about innovation and kind of working with what great things people are doing locally. And that was one of them, right? Knowing that DR Johnson was making CLT, they just weren't making a lot of it and kind of working with them to figure out if how they could ramp up their operations to make enough for an entire building was really the the key to kind of getting this project realized. But if you look in our space, you know, what you see when you look up is all of the exposed glue lambs and the exposed CLT. So it's very woody and warm in here and it's really beautiful. The windows are really tall. They're all wrapped in wood and it just makes a really nice space where you're not just looking at a white ceiling with fluorescent lights or something, right? Instead, right. things are wood and you can touch them and they're nice and soft and it really does make a nicer space to spend time in. So leading the construction of that building must have been incredibly educational for you, but also, I mean, I'm sure you had led other projects before, but I guess I'm kind of interested in how you found and got your leadership skills like dialed in. So leading the construction on that project, I I came in when it was probably at the end of DD or something. So we're going into construction documents. And so I was on that project all the way through documentation and all the way through construction. And so I was the one who was on the job site four days a week or something, talking to people and making sure that we were getting our design intent right, solving any problems and things like that. CA or construction administration is a really important part of what we do. And, you know, technically it's construction observation. We just are on site and we're seeing what's happening on site and making sure that things are being built as we expect them to be or fixing anything that's going to make something look different in the field. And once the project's done, and I think when you have good CA experiences, that is where you, I think where you get leadership skills because Mm. people are looking to you for a solution, you know, they're like, okay, well, this thing and this thing don't quite line up anymore because of some existing condition that we didn't know about. So like, how are we going to change that? Like, what is the solution? And it's, you know, it's drawing through some detail that is new that wasn't in the set because you're solving a different kind of problem, but it's also, you know, working with the general contractor who's in charge of everyone all the way down to, you know, working individually with the electricians who are running all the conduit under the floor. I think it's about relationships, honestly, because going onto a job site and having people know who you are and know your name and in a good way, not that like you're the mean person who yells at them, but instead like 
you just chat with them and then they tell you what's going on and then they just ask you a question about something that you can answer right away. I think that gives you a lot of confidence and it allows you to sort of grow as a leader, right? When you know that you can create a relationship with someone and then together sort of find the solutions to things really takes a lot of the stress out of the job and is really important, I think, for just just moving forward, right? Every next project. And I think it was really different and it was really different in Boston, in Boston, I think contractors and architects have a really contentious relationship and it's really a lot of finger pointing, like whose fault is this and who did this? And, oh, it's your fault because you didn't show it in the drawings or the architect says it's your fault because this is what I showed in the drawings and you actually did something different or something like that, right? And it was, so it was very stressful. And I don't think I learned how to be a leader there. I learned how to maybe look really mean and mad, Um, (laughs) like just put like a really stoic face on uh, knowing that as you walk to the job site, it's just going to be very stressful. And that, that was very different in Portland, right? I was able to just sort of be myself on those jobs and say like, tell me more about this because uh, mechanical is really not my forte and I don't understand what you're saying. So tell me again, what's the problem with this thing and really making people kind of slow down and, And I don't know, I think when people know that you listen to them, then it allows you to lead things a lot smoother, right? They don't think they're being uh, ignored or railroaded or... Exactly, or accused. Um, Yeah. It it also, when you indicate to them that you're joining in on the problem solving, like you understand that this happened because things happen. So let's put our heads together. Let me understand it from your perspective so we can... And yep. I can share my perspective so we can figure out what the mutual solution is. It works so well. People it does. When they don't put up their defensive <laughs> walls, you get a lot of shit done. <laughs> you really do. All you, you just move right to the solution. Yes. Like, Let's just figure this out. Like, okay, I get what happened. There is no point in us talking about whose fault it is. Like, we know who ordered the piece of steel or whatever, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, let's just figure out how to like solve the problem and try not to have to replace the thing entirely. So if you don't have that skill, then I think your life is just more stressful, right? You, mm-hmm. I mean, we're at work so much of the day. I don't want that whole 10 hour period or whatever it is to be full of stress. I'd rather just be like, okay, yep, that's a big problem. Let's figure out how to solve it because that's literally our whole job. Right. We're and done trying. I don't, <laughs> don't want to waste any of my energy nope. on the other stuff. <laughs> nope. Okay. So now you're a big deal. Uh, you're, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. You're a principal at Lever Architecture in Portland and you're the design commissioner of the city of Portland. Yes. So I want to talk about each of those things. Like what, what is your current role and mission as a principal at Lever? Yeah. I mean, having principals at Lever is really new and it's very exciting for me. I'm thrilled. I'm so happy. I'm really excited because I think Lever has been such a great fit for me. So to get to be a principal here really means a lot. And I have come a long way in my career to sort of get to this point where I can lead a lot and I have a lot sort of to bring to the firm that, you know, we weren't, maybe we weren't focusing on as much before. Um, so I, I feel really proud of all of that. What is that? Like, what are you bringing? I mean, I'm really focused on community, right? And so, yes, before I got here, we had done affordable housing and and I think folks were really interested. But I think because I 
have connections with a lot of people in the city. And I already, the whole social work thing, right? My mom being a social worker and me sort of being involved in a lot of community organizations, helping people was sort of a way for me to come into Lever and say like, okay, well, how about we volunteer with this group that I've been volunteering with before and kind of get people involved in that? And then how about we chase these kinds of projects because they're really exciting, right? I think when I started out, there's an interesting thing that happens in Portland that doesn't happen in other cities where people are loaned out from firm to firm. So sometimes a project might go on hold or something uh-huh. and you don't want to hire and fire people. You know, you want to keep those same folks, but you might call someone else at another firm and say, are you really busy? Like, do you need someone for two months or something like that to get through a project? And so people are kind of loaned back and forth. And I think it's really fun because <laughs> I really like change. And I was like, oh, yes, this project isn't starting right now. So I was at Hacker at the time and I came to Lever for a few months to work on a project. So when I first got here, you know, I was sort of a temporary employee and I was, you know, doing production and design on one of the big projects in the office and really helping out the team. But I really liked it and I wanted to stay and I thought it was a great firm and I loved Hacker so much and it really was a hard decision to make. But I think that Lever was such a good fit for me and I could tell that there was room to grow because it was a smaller firm. You know, when I first started, I was part of a big team. And then I immediately was given the Meyer Memorial Trust project to work on. I feel like that really opened up my world a lot because the folks at Meyer are connected to everything. And so I made a lot of a lot of friends and a lot of connections that eventually have been helping me sort of do business development where I'm able to connect with people because I know someone that they know. So I think that has been such a huge help in in my growth and being able to sort of do more things because after sort of being an architect and like, yes, design, yes, construction, my next thing was really like, oh, well, I want to, I want to get jobs now. I want to go after the kind of work that I want to do. So how do I do that? And, uh, and talking to, to Thomas, he was like, oh yeah, you want to do business development? That is great. Like let's. Thomas is the founder of Lever. Thomas is the founder. Yeah. So he's the founding principal. And now we have, you know, myself, John Hefner, Doug Sheets and Sarah Martin are all new principals. And Thomas is the founder. He started the the company 11 years ago. Okay. So he was into you doing business development. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, there weren't any other sort of principals. There wasn't really a a hierarchy. There wasn't really, you know, titles. It was really just Thomas is the principal. And then here's the whole design team and everyone works really collaboratively. But having that kind of structure also meant that the only person who was doing business development was Thomas. Everyone else was on projects all the time. And so he was really supportive and said like, yeah, if you want to do business development, let's, uh, you know, I'll tell you all the things I know. Sarah will help you. Sarah's our director of development and our marketing coordinator. And so she really helped me sort of kind of get into it and understand like how she looks for leads and how she reaches out to people. And so here for the first time, I was really able to do that. And those other firms were like really well established, older, already had six principals at the top, plus associate principals, plus associates, right? So when when places have so many people who are already in leadership positions, it's really hard for someone younger to get in there. So yeah, I that think, makes sense. 
yeah. So I, I knew that wasn't going to happen for me at other firms. But at Lever, I was like, oh, everyone here is really open, wants to grow. And this really is an opportunity for me. Also running projects, but do business development and especially work on this Meyer Memorial Trust project, which was really important. Yes. And we're going to, we're going to get into that because I want to hear all about it. But I also want to touch on the fact that you're a design commissioner of the city of Portland. What does that mean? It sounds like a really big deal that comes with a special hat or something. Um. <laughs> no hat, unfortunately. But there, so there's actually seven design commissioners were commission. So there are seven folks on there and there need to be folks who are architects who are developers who are landscape architects sort of different people play different roles right depending on their experience and so between the seven of us we have this really great breadth of experience and different perspectives right so what we do is we review projects that are in you know what we call the d overlay the design overlay so the zoning code you know there are all these maps that show you sort of what areas are in the design overlay and those are areas that are important sort of corridors obviously downtown sort of um main neighborhood connectors where there's a lot of sort of retail a lot of commercial space and then also in some smaller neighborhoods but the intent there is to make sure that the projects that are being built are meeting very specific guidelines and those guidelines have to do with things that are a little bit subjective like quality and permanence so you're talking about materials of the building right that also includes design cohesiveness sort of is there a concept that you could kind of understand or is it sort of chaos or something mm-hmm. um It's also um, all of these guidelines related to the public realm and how you're protecting pedestrians, how you're treating the streetscape, how you're treating the ground floor in ways that make the street active and feel safe. So there's really a lot of different things that we are looking at. And one of the biggest ones then is context, right? So those are the the three tenets of design are context, quality and permanence and uh, public realm and several guidelines um, within each of those. But context then is about how does the building fit into the neighborhood? How is it serving that neighborhood? And so a lot of these things are about the community and how it impacts the streetscape or, you know, does it leave any room for people to have a bench to sit down or um, is it a blank wall so that there's no eyes on the street and people don't feel safe walking in front of it. All of these different kinds of things are what we're looking at when we look at projects. And, you know, there's already a planner at the city who's gone through the whole project with the design team. And, you know, it's this last part of the land use process where they come and present the project to us. And the really incredible part about it is that it's a public process. So the members of the public are invited to come and speak about any of those three tenants of design. And if they have anything to say about the project, good or bad, they're all given time, it's on the record, and it's part of this, you know, big public hearing so that anyone who's interested gets to share about the project, but they also just get to be informed and hear about it, right? There's postings that go up all over the neighborhoods so that people are able to join. And, you know, we've been doing these um, virtually for the last a year and a half or whatever. Um, But, and that's actually allowed more people, I think, to get involved than had been before, because otherwise you've got to get downtown to the hearings room at a certain time on Thursdays, and maybe you have to work or maybe you're in school or something and you can't join. And so a lot of other folks have 
been able to join because they could just pop in virtually and not have to stay for the whole meeting. Um, so that is really important work to do, right? You're yeah. really looking at every building that you get to review in the city and assessing how it responds to the context and how it treats the public realm. And those things are incredibly important to making a city that feels safe and comfortable and that is still vibrant and that people can still feel like it's home. Right. Well, and you also get, yeah, you also get first person input from community members. I'm sure it's important for each project, but it also gives you an ongoing, like working pulse knowledge of what the community is needing, what they're lacking, what their Mm -hmm. concerns are. And when you're attuned to the community like that, I'm sure if community engagement is one of your core values for the work that you're doing, it, it just helps you even serve the community better. It does. It absolutely does. But I think the problem is that there's still people have been kept out of that process in the past. I think because they didn't know what was happening. Maybe in the past, those notices were not sent to renters because they used to just be sent to homeowners, which doesn't make any sense. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm a renter. Why wouldn't I get a notice? You know, so some of those things have changed so that more people are getting access to these. But uh, to be honest, I mean, every time they've been in person, I've seen very few people of color. And often the folks that get involved have a a neighborhood association or something that they're involved in that's sort of keeping them up to speed on what's happening in the neighborhood. And that's kind of how they're connecting. And so also what I've been doing with the other groups that I work with and that Lever works with is I've been, you know, making sure that every student in those groups knows all about design commission and knows that they can come to the hearings because they're open to the public and that if it's near their house and they have something to say, about it. They should come. They should bring their mom. Just trying to get other people involved so that the faces that I see, you know, talking about a project are actually representing that neighborhood and aren't just people who are interested in all development across the city, right? So that we're actually getting community members. And that's a hurdle that we haven't figured out for design commission yet. It happens when we do individual projects because we know that we have to get out into the community, but this is citywide. So how do we get more people from each of those neighborhoods actually involved? And I think right now it's because they don't know that they can get involved, right? There's a, there's people are nervous. If you come into a big hearings room and there's, you know, a bunch of people sitting in big chairs at a dais and you have to come up and speak out loud at a microphone. I mean, that's pretty intimidating, Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're not like aware of what goes on at those meetings or aware that what you have to say is going to be heard and valued. Yeah, exactly. So ongoing hurdle, but I'm glad that you're working on it and making progress. I can kind of see how community engagement and doing the work you're doing at Lever plus being on the design commission is your way of giving back to the city, which you said at the top of the interview, and you're giving back in, in multiple ways, you know, using Mm -hmm. the skills that you have and, and the connections and the relationship building that you've been doing. That's all part of your creative process. But I want to get even more granular into your creative process, because in doing some reading about your projects, I'm just fascinated. You mentioned the Meyer Memorial Trust HQ in Lower Albina. Can you tell me about that project and about your creative process as you describe that project? Yeah, the project's really incredible because it's Meyer Memorial Trust, right? Their mission is really to help 
create a flourishing and equitable Oregon. And so they really focus just on Oregon and providing grants to different organizations that are doing all kinds of work in education, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, in innovation, and in sustainability. And so they're already doing all of this incredible work. And so they wanted a new headquarters that would really embody their mission and their values. Their previous space was up on the fourth floor of a building in the Pearl District. So it's downtown, a really nice area, but they had no street presence and the space wasn't great for them. But it was mostly about the fact that they weren't actually connected to the communities that they were serving. And so they really wanted to be in Lower Albina, right? They wanted to be places where they were closer to the grantees. And then also, you know, there's a lot of work going into uh, thinking about ways to revitalize Albina and the Black neighborhoods that were displaced and how to bring people back. And so one of the things Meyer wanted to do was be part of that sort of homecoming, right, and be in that neighborhood so that they could know what was happening and sort of be able to continue to support. So I think part of the design process was really starting there and thinking about how the building could really be a connection to the community and how it could you know, embody all of their values about sustainability and about equity and about, you know, connecting people to nature. And so really our process as a whole is starting off with a client and developing a set of design principles that we use to kind of look back at the design as it progresses and say, is it still doing this? Is it still meeting these goals? Um, Can it do it better? But to sort of never lose sight of what those first thoughts were um, at the beginning of the project and what the client wants to get out of it. And so that's very much what Meyer is about, um, really does embody those. So the design principles for Meyer were, you know, equity and not just about the the folks and how they get to use the space inside, but about who was building the project, who was designing the project, who was managing the project. And so that's really part of why it was such a great fit for me because as a woman of color, I mean, I'll I'll tell you that in Oregon, the AIA is our professional organization, the American Institute of Architects. Not everyone is an AIA member. It's not required. It's a professional organization, right? But they do kind of keep stats on everything, salaries, professional development. um, And one of the, you know, some of the stats they keep are are the diversity or lack of diversity in in the industry. And in Oregon, there are four people who identify as Black who are architects in the AIA. Four in all of Oregon. It's Not crazy. 4%, four. No, four individual people, and I am one of them. So two are men and two are women. So I am one of two women who identify as Black, who are part of the AIA here in Oregon. And it's not to say there are not other Black designers, but there are not, they're not listed, in the, they're not part of the AIA, because either A, they haven't completed their licensure, so they haven't gotten to that level, or they just chose not to be counted. And, you know, an interesting thing when I was first moving from associate AIA when you aren't licensed to actual AIA when you are licensed. I had listed myself as two or more races because like I said, I'm half Mexican and that's really who I am. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that there were two men and one woman who listed themselves as black on the, on the register and there were maybe like eight Latina women, um, I was like, 
okay, well, for representation, I think it's important for me that I decide that I'm Black for the AIA because we are out here, but we're not very visible for some reason. And I think visibility is really important. And it's something that I've been working really hard on. So making sure that people know that I'm out here, they know who I am, where I came from and what I'm doing so that if there are young people who are interested in being an architect, they can say, oh, yes, I did see a Black woman who's an architect. And they can recognize that that's something they can do, right? It's hard to know you can do something if you don't see yourself out there. It was great for me to be on Meyer because there are so few women of color who are architects in Oregon. And so to get to work on a project where we're working with Meyer Memorial Trust, we're working with um, Project and the developer from Project is Anya Halva, and she's a woman of color. And then the CEO of Meyer is a woman of color. And so to kind of start off the project is like, here's the team, here's the architect, here's the developer, here's the client, and we're all women of color. That's very unusual. So it's really exciting to get to be there. And then, you know, as we put the team together, right, the contractor that was chosen was O'Neill Walsh Community Builders. And the two women who head up that company also were the project managers on this. So that was um, Afton Walsh and Allie O'Neill. And so we would have meetings here at the Lever offices in our big conference room. It would be all women and half of those women of color. And it was like, whoa, this is really cool. I've never had this experience before. I've never been on a project where all the leadership were women and women of color. And so I was very excited from the beginning to get to work on this project with them and partner with them and imagine how great the whole thing was going to be because it was all of these women, right? (laughs) Yes. As a female who's done a fair amount of construction myself, Mm -hmm. I just, I want to be in that room with you. I want to, that's so amazing. And I'm also, I mean, maybe I'm idealizing it, but it sounds like it went pretty well. The idea of women supporting each other, but also because you all recognize that you, it's a rarity. This magical combination is a rarity. Yeah. Not only are you rare in your field, yeah. but to have this collaborative team of this, of this makeup is super rare. Yeah. So it, really was. it needs to be less rare. It, it absolutely does. But I think that we, we all have that power, right? You can mm-hmm. put your team together however you want. You can hire more women. You can hire more people of color. And that way you will have these kind of teams that really empower people and make people excited about what the future of architecture can be in terms yes. of who's actually in charge of it, who's actually uh, designing, who's running the projects, you know? And, and this really came because Meyer wanted it. You know, they said that equity is really important. We want to see a lot of people of color and a lot of women in the design team, but also in the field, you know, the builders. And so the contractor did a lot of work to get as many minority and women-owned emerging small businesses as we could on the project. And so we did the same with our consultants. So uh, we had, you know, our civil engineer is a women-owned firm and our co-consultant is a minority-owned firm. And it was harder with some of the other scopes to get that. But we've since figured it out so that now on projects, we have more people to choose from who we work with so that we can get more minority and women-owned um, firms as consultants on our projects. But there was a lot of work that the cons- that the contractor did in getting the actual builders, all the subcontractors on board, and making sure that they were reaching out to different places and encouraging people to bid on the project project, even if they 
thought they might not bid on the project. And one way they did that that I think is incredible is by what we call stretch opportunities. So for some scopes of work, we hired folks who may not have worked at that scale before. Maybe they'd done much smaller buildings. Um, or maybe they'd never worked at that level of finish before. So for instance, as a casework was all sort of this dug for veneer and maybe they hadn't worked with that much wood before, right? They hadn't done that level of like sort of sanding and detailing and all that kind of stuff. But the point was with the stretch opportunities in different scopes was to say that maybe you haven't done this before, but you can do it. And if you're given this opportunity, that might mean that in the future, you can then bid on other projects that are bigger or a higher level of finish and be successful on them because you've been given this opportunity, right? So because people get sort of boxed out bigger companies, there's economies of scale, they can do things cheaper than a smaller company can do oftentimes, or they have access to different resources. And it means that those smaller firms are not always successful when they bid on something. And so our hope was that we're helping lift people up by saying, no, no, you can do this job. I know you haven't done it before, but you can do it. So making sure to give people the support that they needed so that they we were helping them succeed and not setting them up to fail on something because they hadn't done it before. Right. So that's a really incredible thing that anyone can do on a job, right? You can just pick one small sub and say, no, you haven't done this before, but let's bring you up. Right. You don't have to, you know, Meyer, we did absolutely everything possible. Like there were minority and women owned businesses running 80% of the scope on the project. And not every project's going to be able to do it because not every client is Meyer Memorial Trust, who that is one of their values. And so they're willing to kind of go on this path with us to say, well, this is what we're doing. And these are, these are the highest numbers we can get for participation. You might not be able to do that on all of your projects, but you can absolutely do some of it. Yes. And something is better than nothing. You just start small and then you're like, oh, great, that was successful. And well, now let's do it for you know, three subcontractors instead of one. Let's figure out how to how to grow it every time. Not only that, but that one sub that you gave a stretch opportunity that one time has been able to now start their own firm and train other people. And it's just yeah. rippling out exponentially. Yeah. Well, and part of that is relationships, right? It's like, we've created this relationship with these folks. I need to check back and call them and say, did you get any more jobs out of this? Did this do what we were hoping it did by giving you this piece in your portfolio that you didn't have before, right? Now people look at it and they can hire you for other things. That's what the intent is, but we have to get the proof to know if we're doing it right. If that's the thing that's actually working, it sounds very logical. Like it would totally work. We just need to kind of hear back from, from folks then. And so Meyer was just completed, you know, in the fall last year. So, we haven't quite gotten to that point. It'll be, you know, in a year, I was going to do one year check-ins and be like, has anything changed for you? It's more effort on our part. We're putting more time to kind of do this, but it's important to us. It's important to Lever. It's important to me. And so I think we're all really excited that, that we've found a way to do something and do something that we think is actually going to make a real difference. Yes. Well, I'm sure that you're very interested to hear how things turn out at that one year check-in. Yeah. I'm also really curious. It's really obvious how the the value of equity was addressed in the approach of the design and the construction of the project. Mm-hmm. What are some of the sort of like physical or aesthetic or structural manifestations of the value of equity? Well, here's another one that's related back to the contractor, but the building itself is 
part mass timber and part traditional stick frame. And the mass timber in this instance is mass plywood, which is a very new product. And it's only made here in Oregon by one company. Um, And mass plywood has been used, I think, mostly in stairs or in projects where it actually gets covered up by finish. So in the Meyer Memorial Trust project, it's the first time that the plywood's being used sort of in a celebratory way because it's in the premier space. It's in their convening space, which is the big event space. Um, and so we use it as structural mullions of the curtain wall. We use it as the beams and columns and as the roof deck. So we do love mass timber and we love innovation, right? We love things that are new and making them better, kind of working through details and what's next evolution of the technology of this. So we're really excited about mass plywood. But the reason why we didn't do the entire building as mass timber was because we wanted to make sure that we were still going to be able to get smaller subs, minority and women-owned and smaller subs, uh, to work on the project, even if they hadn't had experience in mass timber and maybe weren't going to bid on it because they were you know, concerned that, well, they hadn't done it. So we decided to keep the mass plywood and mass timber for part of the building and then use traditional stick framing and then, you know, traditional like gyp ceilings, the white ceilings um, that you see in a typical office space in the rest of the building. And that was really so that people could still do something familiar and perform well on it, but also be part of a project that had this innovative technology and material in it. Right. So it's another way to sort of like open another door for these all of these builders on the project to say like, yes, well, now you have worked on a project that's mass timber. You know, you get really fussy about where the conduit is and where the lights are and every little piece of equipment that's on the ceiling because you're trying to keep it really clean because there's nothing hidden, right? And so we didn't want to go through that process with folks who are new to the technology because it can take more time. So instead we said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're thinking about it in a different way and we're making this sort of convening space like this um beautiful, expressive space. And then the rest of the the building is a little bit more traditional, but it's still incredibly vibrant because of all of the art and murals and colors and textures that are in it. Um, So thinking about equity there and then thinking about the interior spaces, right? So there are offices, private offices and small conference rooms. Those are all the same size, but this, the small conference rooms are on the corners of the building. So they have the most windows and the most light. And the intent there is to say that those are the spaces that everyone uses. So we're not going to put executives in the corner office, right? They get moved in. And then there are so many amenity spaces that again, are for everyone to use that there's a, you know, really big, beautiful lunchroom and a roof deck and a mission library. And these are all spaces that um, staff can use to work sort of in an alternate location um, and just have more amenity space. It's not just your desk, right? But in thinking about how, you know, we set up the building, there's sort of a, a core in the middle that's sort of all the active uses. And then there are these quiet zones, which are the neighborhood open office pods. And then on either side of those, there's often like an office or something. But All of those are pretty shallow spaces, just two people deep. And that way, all of the light gets in all the way to that second person's desk, right? You make something too deep and people don't have equal access to daylight, like actually on their surfaces. And there are just views everywhere through this building. So part of the equity was giving everyone that equal access to daylight and views, right? And operable windows, right? All of these spaces are great. Um, Another thing that we did was we made all of the restrooms on the upper office floors um, ADA sized because we wanted them to be equal so that everyone has the same experience of using a bathroom. Like just because you use a mobility device, 
doesn't mean your bathroom has to be different in any way except the grab bars, right? The size, the proportions are all the same for all of the bathrooms. I think that's really important to give everyone the same experience, right? And then thinking about all of the seating in the building, you know, um, Cecily, who's our director of interiors, she went through a really long process talking with everyone about their workspaces and, you know, specifically chairs and brought them maybe like 15 chairs to try out to have people kind of test out what was comfortable. And that, you know, usually you don't bring that many chairs, but the whole point was that we needed to find chairs that fit people with different size bodies. Like if you have a bigger body, maybe you don't want a chair with arms because it's too pinchy. Like I don't want a chair with arms. Um, I don't like to squeeze into things, right? But maybe if you have uh, limited mobility, you want a chair with arms because it's easier to push yourself up out of the chair, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Deciding on that was specifically so that we could make sure that there was a chair or some kind of seating arrangement in every space that was comfortable for everyone, right? So not every person got their own chair, but there's a mix of seating and all of those. We also made the kitchen extra big. There's probably like five and a half feet between one counter and the island. And the intent there was that if I'm in a mobility device, someone who is not can still pass behind me and work really comfortably. And there's no need for someone to have to wait to use it because there's not room for them to use it. Right. Um, There's lots of spaces that accommodate people, but it means that someone else can't be using it while you're in there. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's socially very uncomfortable. So this really sort of levels it all out and says there's room for all of us to be here all together at any time. And all the spaces are the same, right? So part of that is, you know, universal design is thinking about the same experience for everyone. So we really did think about all of these spaces in the building and how we can make sure that they were, they didn't have to be adapted to be used by everyone, but they were already designed well so that it felt very easy for everyone to be in the space together. I'm thinking about that big kitchen too, with that space where somebody in a mobility device can be in there working at the same time as somebody who's not in one Yeah, means that now they can have a shared experience in that space and a conversation. Whereas before, or in an adapted space, those kinds of interactions don't happen because of limited space. Yeah, you just have to wait your turn, right? And you're like, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll be out of here in just a second, right? Because you can't all be there at the same time comfortably. But so much work and so much relationship building happens in those those moments that, yeah. that you can have shared together doing something that's not specifically work. And you spend at least eight hours of your day there, right? So why should you have to sort of compromise or make yourself small all the time, you know, for half of your life when you're at work? You should be comfortable. You should feel like it's designed for you. It's really important. Amen. I'm really excited about a lot of things that we have coming up. You know, we're working on an affordable housing project right now, and it's in for permit. And we're excited. We're going to go into construction next year. And we had a big community engagement process around that as well, talking to people who are going to be in the spaces. And then uh, this Paramount project, it's not a project yet. The clients are applying for funding for it um, as we speak. But it's a project from the Albina Vision Trust. And Albina Vision Trust is an organization that has put together a master plan for the Albina neighborhood and how to 
repair it and how to grow it and make it this incredible, vibrant node in the city um, over the next 50 years, right? So Albino was a neighborhood that was a historically Black neighborhood, all Black families, and they had been pushed into these areas by redlining, right? So rentals and home ownership were not available to Black folks outside of these areas because people simply would not rent to them or would not sell to them. Um, and there are covenants in the laws saying that you couldn't own property in other areas, right? So these places were Black neighborhoods because that is where they were pushed to. So all of these then um, Black neighborhoods eventually were sort of destroyed by the state putting the, the freeway through, right? So that broke things up and, and land was taken through eminent domain saying that, oh, this area is blighted. And it wasn't blighted. It just was full of Black people but it was vibrant and healthy and um, there were neighborhoods and communities. And so those neighborhoods and communities were displaced. Some folks are still in the neighborhood. Many have had to move away. And so the Albina Vision Trust is really an effort to kind of put back the seeds so that neighborhoods can grow again and to invite uh, people who used to live here back to sort of have a homecoming, right? So they've been working on this for a while and have this really beautiful master plan of what can be. And the first project is for us to build a new affordable housing tower that is their first project in this sort of master plan. And so that's why I'm really excited about it because it's kind of getting to kick off the, not revitalization, but the like the replacement of a neighborhood where right now there's, you know, there's some event centers, the Moda Center, Memorial Coliseum, there's, you know, warehouses for buses and parking lots and things. It's not a neighborhood anymore, right? But to Mm -hmm. create a neighborhood again is why that project is so exciting. And the reason that we're involved is because we're involved in Meyer Memorial Trust. And that is, you know, an organization that supports so many other things, right? And folks on that board, you know, are involved in Meyer, And it's so it's sort of just that connection, right? It's very much about knowing people who are doing good work and trying to connect with them so that you can be part of that good work also. So that's how we're involved in, in Paramount. And um, we hope that'll start up in the fall um, because that'll be a really exciting project. And again, it will have a really incredibly robust community engagement component because we need to hear from people what they think about it and how they think it's going to serve the community. And I'll be thinking about all of the things I think about in design commission where, you know, what is it doing for the public realm? How does it fit into the context? And in this case, it's future context because what's there now is not desirable. If we're thinking about replacing a neighborhood that was lost, that was destroyed, you know, we want to get rid of the warehouse buildings and put apartment buildings in there, right? We want, places for people to have, we want to be a destination. Like there's a reason to come there, even if you don't live there. Um, So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but it's really exciting because this is like real stuff that impacts the city and impacts the future, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited (laughs) for it too. I'm going to stay tuned. And that kind of leads into the next question that I I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, from your position as somebody who's an architect really involved with community engagement, and also as design commissioner, I am wondering, in the in the spirit of like, simplifying something to give some tools to regular citizens so that they can maybe go into some of these planning commission meetings and have something to say. Yeah, if you were to boil it down into a recipe that many cities can repeat, repeat, what do you think are the key ingredients of undoing 
a lot of this racist urban planning that's still operational and still causing harm in our built environments today? I mean, I think the number one thing is if I think about the word authenticity, a lot of people say, yes, we're doing community engagement. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. But in reality, they've already made a plan, right? Mm -hmm. They already think they know all the things that they're going to put in there and they're going to listen to you, but that's not necessarily, they're not necessarily going to change their plan. And I think they need to start with listening to the community before they've actually gone down this programming and design road, right? That's because that's not being authentic. That's, that's saying that you're doing something, but, but you're not. Yeah. Listen first before design. <laughs> yeah. But I think you need to like be a person, right? You need to make it personal and you need to let it be emotional when it's emotional. Why is that um, so hard for people? <laughs> it's so hard. No one wants to do it, but it's just like, Hey, you might be wrong about this. And you yeah. need to be able to listen and be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I was so dumb. I was totally wrong. Just like, let it happen. People are going to trust you so much more they're going to share more with you, you're actually going to get something that is really responsive and really makes the community excited. And we can design for that. It's going to be something that we're going to love too. But it's really hard for people in leadership, people in positions of power to be authentic with uh, community members. And I think that's really important for other cities to understand is to start there, you know? Yeah, investing in those relationships and building that trust and then bringing bringing in those voices and listening to them before you get so far down the road that you're going to be resistant to hearing yeah. what they have to say because it's going to make you, it's going to cost money and make you change what you've already done. Yeah, exactly. And people will be like, oh, duh, of course you would do that. But they don't actually do it. It sounds like something everyone should understand. And yet they're not, I think people are not doing that in practice. So I think that's number one. And number two, I think, is remove the barriers, right? If there are these public hearings and they're held, you know, ours were always 1.30 from 1.30 on on Thursdays, right? And oftentimes we'd be there until like 8 o'clock at night. But all of the, the specific projects have a, have a time that they're going to start, right? So if you know you want to talk about a specific project, you know how you have to be there at a certain time. But I think removing more barriers and making a better effort to reach out to neighborhoods in different languages and really let them know that not only are they welcome to come, but you really want them to come and, and talk about it, um, engaging with communities in, in different ways that kind of really makes them understand that you would be so happy to have them come to these public hearings. You know, I'm excited to see people, even if they're not talking to me about public realm, often people are like telling me that they don't like a building for many reasons, but the real reason is probably that it blocks their view of something beautiful, but their, their view is not protected and their view is not important. What's important is like, if that's housing, getting people into housing and making sure that people who don't have the privilege are the ones who are thought of first instead of the folks who are, I have this beautiful view and that's why I'm here to talk about protecting it. Whereas someone else who might live in that housing is not there to talk about how there's no way that that size of apartment could possibly work for a family or something, right? People are just aren't told of the opportunities that they have to actually speak up and are not um, empowered to do so. 
or now should be fairly easy to hold them in person and stream them at the same time. I mean, I've yes. been teaching in person and dealing with remote students at the same time. Yes. We stream the content and they can speak. I mean, we have a Zoom meeting going the whole time so they can yes. contribute to the in-person class yes. and the in-person class can talk to them on Zoom. Everybody should be able to do this now yes. for these types of meetings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And get more people in. And I think it's really helpful because I'm sure as you've seen in teaching, some people are, it's easier for them to talk if they're, it's just their voice. There's no on camera and they're not in person, right? There's just different ways that people are comfortable communicating and, and doing that virtually opens up another another option for them to make them more likely to come. So yeah, removing barriers, I think is really important. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I feel like they're both really common sense, but need to be reiterated and explained and amplified and talked about as often as we can. Yeah, absolutely. It's been like so wonderful and interesting talking to you. I'm curious where you see yourself headed in the future. Like, does this scale up for you? What does it feel like? What are your goals and ambitions? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'd been thinking about that before. I'm, you know, I'm really active here in Portland and doing lots of things. And recently, you know, Michelle, who's the CEO at Meyer, was like, okay, but what national boards are you on? Like, because <laughs> I was like, Michelle, I'm so tired. I can't, I can't even think about that right now. I'm so busy with all the things I'm doing here in Portland. And, you know, it's because Portland is my hometown and it's really important to me. And I really love getting to be a part of making it better and helping it grow. But I had been thinking about that, like what's next and, and how do I scale up? And really the things that I'm really excited about are, you know, new building technologies, like thinking about mass timber and where it's going and sustainability and all of the like really big strides that we can make that just need financial investment in order to make it work on a project, right? But being able to take that stuff, being able to take all of this great, beautiful mass timber spaces into all of these um, community-focused projects that we do. So, you know, getting it into affordable housing and into community centers and into libraries and making it so that all of these new technologies that we're really excited about now are things that everyone in the public is going to get to enjoy and experience. That's really important to me because I think that we go through phases in architecture where there's sort of different things that people are using often and um, and that are sort of new. And one of those is mass timber, but I, I want to make sure that everyone gets access to it because I think it's really exciting. And then really just pushing on innovation and what are the new things that we can do um, in mass timber, like what's next and how can we make things uh, modular and prefabricated and make construction faster, but also really exciting so that, you know, a lot of times you you see prefab things that, you know, even the newer prefab things that are coming out, but they're very simple and they don't look very exciting. <laughs> and I'm really interested in making things that are spectacular design that are like people want to be there but that are also using sort of the latest technologies to build them fast and efficiently kind of deploy them everywhere. Well, you're spectacular. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and for also your philosophy and, you know, really explaining the way that the work gets done. I think it's been really informative, but just also really hopeful. Really, yeah. really hopeful. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot of good things coming. It, it, it is hopeful because 
we're able to make changes now. We just have to decide to do it. And we are, we are, it's happening. So I encourage everyone to, to do that, do whatever it is that you can, because there's a lot of ways to make a difference. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To see images of Chandra's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it really, really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to discover more great shows. They curate the best of them so you don't have to. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.